All right, the most emotional person in the room, me, managed to get through that without crying, so that's a good thing. Uh, again, we're in First Peter. Uh, the title of the sermon this morning is called Scattered Strangers. We're just looking at two verses this morning. If you want to read along with me, First uh, Peter 1 and 2, God's Word says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Right belief, right belief, right doctrine, right theological understanding aids and leads one in right living. Uh, Beliefs that we draw out of Scripture have no effect unless they're put into practice within our life. We all affirm that. Generally, we seek, as we uh, preach the Word of God here at North Bullet Christian Church, we are seeking to understand God's Word and the truths that are presented, and then we seek to apply these. We apply these truths to our lives so that our, our lives are changed, they're transformed. Uh, we seek to draw in the instruction of God through, his, through the Bible, and we seek to apply those to our situation and our uh, cultural context. It's something that we do almost every week here as we hear the Word of God uh, preached. Today, however, as we're introduced into uh, the book of First Peter, we set today the foundation for all of those uh, application truths that are going to come through uh, this letter as we journey through this letter in uh, the coming months. Because of what follows from Peter's greeting is stems from this. It stems from right belief. The establishment of right belief is our foundation. Again, right belief aids and leads one to right living. And so today's sermon will be couched in the doctrinal truths that we draw from Peter's greeting, which is the foundation then that Peter builds his case for right living uh, in the coming chapters. And so what is the foundation that Peter builds upon in these opening two verses, our main point this morning? Uh, It's this. It's the gospel, okay? Simply put, that's the foundation that Peter begins on. The authoritative, that is the apostolic teaching of Peter to Christians. He calls them elect exiles. I want to pause there. Anytime you see that term elect, that's meaning Christians. It's meaning followers of Christ. Elect exiles is founded upon the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ, Peter begins his letter on the basis of his apostolic authority. He's called the Apostle Peter, his direct calling by Jesus. And as an authoritative writer inspired by the Holy Spirit, we, we believe anybody who has penned a writings within Scripture, the human authors were under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. He pins this letter beginning with, again, the foundational truth of the gospel. Looking to the Apostle Paul in this way, he gives us the gospel in this way in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, I want to remind you, is a pivotal, pivotal chapter in Scripture. I encourage you to dwell on that constantly because it speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and then he says this, in which you stand. Going to verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of, I want you to hear this, as of first importance. 
the primary thing is what Paul's saying. What I also received, that Christ, here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. So it it didn't just happen. It wasn't just luck, but according to God's redemptive purpose and plan as conveyed in the Old Testament scriptures, that he was buried, that he really died, and that he was raised on the third day. He was resurrected in accordance with the scriptures. And hear this, that he appeared to Cephas. Who is Cephas? Peter, then to the twelve, so the other disciples. So there were people that saw him, and the twelve weren't the only ones that saw him. Thousands saw him, the resurrected Christ. Peter, now the author of this letter, 1 Peter, is an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. He saw Jesus with his own two eyes. And so much so, for those of you who struggle with doubt with the resurrection, so much so that Peter gave up his life for that truth. He was martyred for the faith that he had. I've posed this question before. Who would die for a lie? I wouldn't. And many, many, many Christians died because they were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. It's one of many reasons that we know that the resurrection of Jesus is historical and it has actually happened. He rose from the dead. Peter was, didn't only die, but Peter was actually crucified. And Peter was so radically, his faith so radically transformed him that he, he asked if he could be crucified upside down. Because he found himself unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. That's a radical transformation because he saw the resurrected Jesus. So Peter is an eyewitness to the resurrected king. I want you to notice something. Both Paul, so we've drawn on Paul's teaching, uh, the introduction of Peter's teaching. They incorporate this. They incorporate the gospel message within their letters. What's, who is the audience of these letters? Christians, followers of Jesus. You see, oftentimes we view the gospel, we restrict the gospel to it only being this, this evangelistic message. It's, it's step one in, in your journey with Christ. When in reality, these men convey to us that the gospel is for all of life. It's to save and to sanctify, that is, to grow in Christ's likeness. We must be and should be reminded of the good news about Jesus constantly in our lives as followers of Christ. Peter and Paul illustrate that for us right here. They always begin with the gospel, with the work of Jesus It's why our church, in our church, week in and week out, you will hear the gospel preached from this pulpit. It reminds us of this, church. It reminds us of how great and gracious our God is, how loving He is, how merciful He is. Uh, Michael Horton says this of, of the good news of the gospel. He says, good advice may help us in daily direction, right? Anybody got good advice from somebody before? Gave you some direction and helpful. He says this though, but the good news concerning Jesus Christ saves us from sin's guilt and tyranny over our lives and this, the fear of death. It's good news because it does not depend on us. 
It's about God and his faithfulness to his own purposes and promises. And so church, let us often be reminded of the gospel in our everyday lives. We're only going to have three points this morning. We're going to ask this question first. Who is Peter? Who is Peter? Uh, The first part of verse 1, Peter tells us, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I love how simply he puts that there. Who is Peter? Notice, unlike if you you read through Paul's letters, Paul usually, he's he's a little long-winded, you know? Paul's going to spend some time unpacking what it means to be an apostle. And in a sense, Paul generally is kind of defending himself and his, his apostolic authority. Here, Peter just says, apostle of Jesus Christ. Everybody knows who I am. Not in an arrogant way, but I'm one of Jesus's 12. And within the 12, there was three disciples that were incredibly close to Jesus. Peter was part of Jesus's inner circle. See, Jesus even had an inner circle of relationships, people that were incredibly close to him. Peter just says, I'm an apostle, and he leaves it at that. Here's a quick synopsis of Peter's life. So who is Peter? This is Peter. Peter's called by Jesus personally. The Bible says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon. Uh, Jesus gave Simon a new name, Peter or Cephas, which means this, the rock. I like that name. I like the rock. Anybody like the rock? I love the rock. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, the authoritative word of God here, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And look at what they do. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. When Jesus tells you to do something, you do it. Peter is the first uh, to recognize Jesus as Messiah when Jesus asked him, but who do you say that I am? Peter, Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And yet, Peter was also the one who soon after he confessed Jesus as the Christ, he rebuked Jesus when Jesus foretold of his impending death and resurrection. He was the one who eagerly wanted to, to build a tent. You remember the, the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter's like, let's, Peter's like, let's build some tents up here. Let's hang out up on this mountain forever. He was the one who seemed to represent the questions of the disciples. He was the one who vehemently denied that he would betray Jesus three times, and yet he, what? He succumbed to that pressure, didn't he? And yet Peter, this is the, the beauty of digging into this letter. It's the beauty of including the shortcomings of men like Peter in Scripture because it helps us to grow. It helps us to grow in our faith. You see, because Peter understood the grace of Jesus, didn't he? He understood it deeply. In John, he's questioned by Jesus with these words. Jesus just cuts to the heart. Do you love me? Peter says, of course. To which Jesus instructed him, feed my sheep. Here we have an example of Peter feeding his sheep in this letter. Peter was the one then from there. Peter was the one who, when filled by the Holy Spirit of God, boldly proclaimed the the gospel on Pentecost, only because of the power of God on him. 
He was the one who proclaimed all throughout Acts the gospel in the face of imprisonment and death. He is the one who pins this letter to Christians scattered and struggling through life in the face of adversity and persecution. And he speaks with the authority of God as an apostle of Jesus Christ. You see, we don't weight the red letters heavier than the black letters. They're all the word of God. Peter speaks as an authority of Jesus, and we know this because we believe that every word is inspired by the Holy Spirit that's written here, just as God intended it to be. Every word intended for our instruction and growth in Christ-likeness. And so we come now to a, a second question. Who are the elect exiles that Peter is writing to? Who are the elect exiles? It says in the second half of, of verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I know some of you in this room love a little map every once in a while, so I'm going to throw some maps up on the room. A certain brother of mine in particular. We've got those spaces circled up there. You have the Black Sea kind of up the top that, that's uh, cut off, and the Asian Sea there, Mediterranean. So all of these people were kind of along those, those coastlines up there. And you see Pontus up top. I didn't circle it, but it was actually part of Bithynia, I believe. Uh, that whole section up there was kind of one section. So that's the group of people that Peter's writing to. We believe he's writing from Rome. And so the elect exiles are Christians living in areas of these, these coastal regions. We're not actually exactly sure of Peter's relationship to these Christians. There really isn't any evidence that he, he planted these churches or preached the gospel in this region. It seems as though they, they may have received the good news about Jesus and other locations and brought it back to their homes. Perhaps, maybe this is reading a little bit into it, perhaps some of them were converted Jews that heard Peter's sermon at Pentecost and they went back sharing this gospel with their families. The bottom line is this. This is a letter to people who need encouragement. Who here needs a word of encouragement? They need encouragement in the midst of despair. Even though in history at this point yet, I would be misleading you to to tell you that there was widespread persecution. There wasn't yet a, a Roman mandate against Christianity in the Roman Empire. It's a little bit too early in history, we believe. But there was still scattered persecution against Christians uh, in these little towns. You want to know why? Because the Roman citizens just kind of thought they were weirdos. They were just odd. They're a bunch of Jesus freaks, right? It's likely that these folks were dealing with the effect of their newfound faith in a cultural context that thought they were just kind of out of their minds. It's clear that they needed encouragement in the midst of suffering. And in God's gracious provision, Peter is willing and able. Feed my sheep, right? Feed my sheep. As we look to the contents of this letter, we're going to spend probably about 11 weeks uh, up till Thanksgiving in this letter of 1 Peter. We're going to see the application of the gospel just in everyday life type of stuff. How do we deal with, with authorities? That's a big question right now. How do we deal with our family life? We kind of see it working in concentric circles out. Family, church, authorities, state authority, national authority. All the, the, how does the gospel interact with those things and inform us 
as transformed followers of Jesus. Peter begins his address with founding and solidifying the Christian faith in the saving work, I want you to hear this, in the saving work of the triune God. Okay, I use that word on purpose. What in the world does that mean? God is Trinity. He is three in one. That's what we believe. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I don't know how it works. I can't give you an illustration that would live up to how it works. It's one of those matters of faith that we believe that God is a trinity. He's three persons in one Godhead. Because the Bible teaches that there is one God, and the New Testament speaks of him in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We see it right here in verse 2. So God is three in one. And so we have three sub-points here under who are the elect exiles. The first sub-point that we have is we see that we're known by the Father. Known by the Father. It says in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We're known by the Father. Remember, remember the audience, to the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In God's providence, okay, if you guys recall, last week we, uh, Brian, one of our elders, did an excellent job preaching through Psalm 139. Do you guys remember the title of that sermon? Known. Interestingly enough, we come to this passage and we see a statement that we are known by God. Isn't that amazing how God just works those things out? It's almost like we needed to hear that two weeks in a row. We're known by the Father. Christian, I want you to hear this. You're known by God. God knows you personally. He's your Father. The Greek word for foreknown in this passage used by Peter here is the word that we get the medical term prognosis from. Prognosis. From that word, we get the sense of, of a, a predicting or setting forth a course of, of treatment that'll end up. That's what a doctor does when they give a prognosis. They kind of give a treatment plan, and that treatment plan brings about this end, right? Or so they think most of the time. We do call it practicing medicine, right? And so it's a practice of believing that you're going to get to that point. In our, in our human fallibility, okay, we're not infallible, we have, we're fallible people. Medical professionals are, even these learned men and women, brilliant minds, are still at the whim of a providential God. So even though they may have a prognosis and they see a hundred patients that that works out, and there might, there might be one where it doesn't pan out that way. But I want you to hear this truth. You see, they, they can make a prognosis, but they cannot cause an end. Well, hear this. In God's prognosis, he always brings about the desired end. He's sovereign. He cannot fail. God cannot fail. Did you hear that? We're going to parallel this passage with a passage from Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 14. We'll just look at, the, at 13, and then the next section we'll look at the, at the whole passage together. Paul says it this way, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. We see here the personal... I want you to hear this. Don't get caught up so much on the words. What I want you to do is come away with this truth. We see the personal engagement of the Father in saving his people. 
God is personally involved in this. He knows you, Christian. It's no mistake that you are here. It's not blind fate, luck, happenstance, but rather it is the plan of God to call you into his family, to call you his own, to call you this, sons and daughters, through the work of Jesus Christ. The beauty of God's saving work is that it's not just the Father doing something, but we see each part of the Trinity playing into the salvation of his people. And so next we're going to look at the work of the Spirit. Our second sub-point, made holy by the Spirit. Made holy by the Spirit. We see three words there, justified, sanctified, glorified, before you start rolling your eyeballs back in your head. Just kind of bank those away in your head. We're going to get to those in just a second. We're made holy by the Spirit. Verse 2, the second part of verse 2. Peter says, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Peter now points Christians to the work of the Holy Spirit. And I want to pause here. Think about Peter's life. If ever someone understood the work of the Spirit, would it not be Peter? The Spirit came upon him after the ascension of Jesus, and he was moved to preach the gospel. The same man who denied Jesus three times now boldly stands before thousands of people proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. And you want to know what happened? The Holy Spirit fell on that crowd, and they responded in repentance and belief and baptism following Jesus Christ. Many of those people believed so much that they'd lost their lives for the Christian faith, contending for the Christian faith. If anybody knows the power of the Spirit, it's Peter. They were sanctified. They were made holy. What does that mean? Going back to our three words, there are three aspects of sanctification Three aspects of sanctification. We call the first one justification. Okay, justification. Justification is this. Try to put it in the simplest terms. Justification is the declaration of holiness given to us upon coming to saving faith in Jesus. When we come to saving faith in Jesus, we are declared, our position is declared holy right then and there. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of confidence and trust and faith in the work that Jesus has done. It's a recognize, it's, it's humbly coming before the throne and saying, God, I'm not good enough. I need you. I place my confidence in your work and not my work. And at that moment, God declares not guilty because Jesus took the pun- punishment. So your position has changed. You are justified by the work of Christ through faith. The next part of sanctification is the word sanctification itself. It's the one that we usually are wrestling with most within uh, the gathering of God's people. Sanctification is this, the slow and steady growth in holiness in our present life, in our walk with Jesus. So we're saved, we're justified, we're made right, In the eyes of God, he sees the righteousness of Jesus that covers us. 
But God's plan is not for us to just remain the same wretched person, but that we would be transformed from the inside out, that we would be sanctified, that we would be made more like Jesus. Okay, and I want you to hear this, this truth. You're never in the flesh going to be perfectly sinless, holy in this present life. We will always wrestle with sin in the flesh. It's why we need God's Holy Spirit. It's why we need God's Word. It's why we need the fellowship of the local church so that we can have accountability and we can sharpen each other and grow in the faith. So that's sanctification. Lastly, we we heard the word glorification or glorified. Glorification is this. It's the completion of holiness upon one of these two things, upon death or the return of Jesus. We're glorified. At that point, then, we're, we're without sin because we can't be in the presence of God and still be sinners. So this is what God's so good that he just finishes the work because we never get to the finish line in this life. God's just like, okay, I'll pull you there. You're, you're running a marathon and he's running behind pushing you. Actually, he's not pushing you. He just throws you on his shoulder, does the old fireman's carry takes you across. And so we do this. We live in light of our undeserved standing in Jesus. That's our justification. Our present life is lived in the process of sanctification or growth and holiness. Notice the word I used in there a little bit earlier when I defined that is I said slow and steady. Okay, it's a slow process, that growth in holiness. I've used this illustration before. It's like, you ever seen a stock market chart where it kind of goes up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down? But if you drew a line in there from the left to the right, generally the stock market is going up and to the right, isn't it? There's some peaks and valleys on any given day. Sanctification is oftentimes like that. At least it is for me. So our present life is lived in the process of sanctification or growth and holiness, and we look forward to, so we have it positioned through justification. We're striving towards Christ's likeness in this present life, but we're constantly looking forward to that time of glorification, perfection. I no longer have to wrestle with my sin and my shortcomings and my ugliness that's inside of me. Again, looking to our parallel passage from Paul. I bracketed the first part because we just read that, but I want to read it again so we can see the full context. He says this, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. Hear this, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds familiar to what Peter's saying, doesn't it? We're kind of seeing those three layers, Father, Spirit, Son. These are men making very similar truth claims. It's kind of almost like they have the same Holy Spirit inspiring them to write Scripture, right? We're made holy by the Spirit for obedience to Christ. Lastly, we are cleansed, hallelujah, by the blood of Jesus cleansed by the blood of Jesus, past, present, future. I put that in there just in case you ever forget that you're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Peter says this, and for sprinkling with his blood, and then he says this, may grace and peace be multiplied in you. Not addition, multiplication. That's big. When you multiply things together, they exponential, I'll thank you. That's the word I was looking for, but it just was not coming out. 
Family, we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Sins, past, present, and future, all forgiven by the once and for all sacrifice of our Savior. And as a result of this, as Peter closes out his greeting, he declares, may grace grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Do you guys think Peter gets the grace of God? He gets the grace of God. He's the one who denied the Savior three times and yet was forgiven. He's loved, shown mercy and grace, and he's set free to go preach the good news of Jesus. Grace and peace multiplied in the life of Peter. Because the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover all of our sins, and we praise God for that. The blood of Christ also ratifies a new and better covenant in which we are filled, we, we learn this from Scripture, that we're filled with God's Holy Spirit, and, and Scripture says that the law of God would be written on our hearts. The language actually reminds me, as I was studying for this, of a passage that we just hit on uh, in Exodus, Exodus 24, 7 to 8. It says, Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant, hear this, and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, so they hear God's word, and then they respond. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. He covered them with the blood and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Church, I want you to notice this order. They heard the word of God and they responded in obedience to the word. And then they were covered by the blood. Paul says this in Romans ten seventeen. He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We hear the word and we respond. We can define faith as as trust or confidence. If you have a hard time with faith, think of trusting something or placing your confidence in something. You're confident that it's going to do what it says it's going to do. We're confident that he has accomplished his redemptive purpose in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And in this confidence, trust, faith, we then are covered by the blood of Jesus. That's what Peter's getting at when he says, we're sprinkled by the blood. Some of you are like, this is weird. A blood sacrifice was necessary to atone, to cover our sin. We're sprinkled by, with the blood of Christ. His blood washes away all of our sins so that then grace and peace may be multiplied in us. Looking at that quote again from Michael Horton, the good news concerning Jesus Christ saves us from sin's guilt and tyranny. I love that word there in that context. Tyranny over our lives and the fear of death. That's grace and peace that we've been saved from that. But we don't have to fear death anymore. We don't have to fear sin and its consequences. It's good news because it does not depend on us. It's about God and his faithfulness to his purposes and promises. Lastly, I want to close out with this point. Lastly, as scattered strangers, we have to understand that we'll always be at odds with the world. Do you struggle with the world at times and the world system? You feel like you're at odds. And by the world, I don't mean God's good creation. When God spoke things into existence, he said they were good. 
but rather I'm speaking of the world system. And when I say the world system, that's the system that is fighting against and pushing against the reign of Jesus Christ, his kingdom, and his people. That's what I mean when I say the world. It brings us to our last point. Christians are aligned with a kingdom that is not of this world. Christians are aligned with a kingdom that is not of this world. Jesus prays it in this way, in what we call the high priestly prayer. Calling upon his, his father, he says this. Jesus says, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have, hear this, my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Did you notice that? But that you keep them from the evil one, that you protect my sheep. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Family, this is not our home. Our home is an eternal dwelling with God in his presence. This does not mean that we neglect our calling to proclaim the gospel and to seek the justice and welfare of our community. It does mean that we view our lives in light of the the eternal dwelling that we're heading towards. That we may not become discouraged in the midst of persecution and suffering. That we may not despair when we are mocked for our faith and belief in Jesus. Jesus said this, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. As we wrap up this morning, I want to share this illustration with you. I'm hoping this this conveys the truth that I I want to share with you. Back in in March, we took some of our staff team to Sunrise Children's Services. We share about them often. It was Nate, Heidi, myself, and my wife, Karen. Sunrise Children's Services is a a foster organization uh, run through the Kentucky Baptist Convention and they operate a boys' home in Mount Washington that ministers primarily to teenage boys, 13 to 17, and they live within that. It's a residential facility that they live in. And so uh, we had a gentleman here that shared about their ministry, and we were eager to go over there and partner with them and see what they were doing there on the ground. And so we took a staff team over there to visit and take a tour of the facility. While we were there, Stuart kind of leads up that the residential facility, and he had enlisted a young man that was a part of the program, I don't know, 16, 17 years old. And he actually gave us the tour. We were all impressed because he, he was a confident young man. He, he loved the staff and the facility there. He knew he was cared for. He seemed to be a caring young man that cared for other people. He greeted us with a smile. He did his job well while giving us a tour. Again, we were all impressed by this this young man. And then we were hanging out in, they have like a little half-court basketball gym there. We're hanging out in, in the gym, and I can't remember what sparked the conversation, but he shared with us 
I'm leaving soon. A family adopted me in Georgia, and I'm heading home. In a sense, I'm going to my forever home. I'm not in this facility anymore, but I'm heading to the place I'm supposed to go to. The boy's home was never his permanent home, was it? But he did the best that he could do to honor the expectations given him while he was in the facility. He didn't neglect his duty. Even though he knew true home wasn't far off, he cared for others and he kept up on his chores, not neglecting his immediate calling there in that facility. And yet joyfully, what? What's the ending to that story? He was adopted recently and he was taken home. He went to his forever home. In much the same way, that's how this life is to us. We're here. We're carrying out the calling of God. We're not neglecting our community. We are loving God by loving others. But ultimately, we're heading towards that eternal dwelling place with God because we've been adopted into his family too. Sons and daughters of the king. Let us be like this young man, loving, serving, proclaiming in this world, while understanding that our eternal dwelling place is in the presence of 